Super Talk Mississippi media production. Come see your locally owned and operated Linton Glass for all your glass needs. No matter what glass you need to replace, you can count on Linton Glass. Call us today at 601-835-4336 or find us on the web at lintonglass.com. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone and welcome to midday super talk mississippi i'm your host gerard gibbard along with rhino in the element wealth studio guiding you through the middle of your day with facts fodder and fine music on this friday eve all right so we need to tell folks about a little technical issue we're having right with the network right now i think uh, it's not the network. It's just one uh, transmitter. I okay. Okay. So just uh, the one in the central Mississippi area. Yes. Is that right? Ninety-seven point three. Although I could be wrong, but we are still up on SuperTalk.fm and SuperTalk app, or you can find us on Seaspire TV. Right. Channel seventy. And that is the message. And the team is uh, working as we speak to resolve this issue, and we hope for it to be taken care of uh, while we're on the show. Is our understanding is all that work is underway now. On the program today at 11.20, it's Representative Missy McGee. She, uh, of course, hails from District 102. That includes Forest and Lamar counties. Serves as the chair of the House Medicaid Committee. And guess what we're going to be talking about there? The uh, Medicaid bill that uh, did pass by a rather wide margin in the House of Representatives yesterday. At 12.05, it's Tyler McCon. He is a Mississippi senator from District 31, Lauderdale, Newton, and Scott counties. Serves as the chair of the Senate Forestry Committee, vice chair of the Senate Agriculture Committee. We're going to get an update from the senator on what's going on with legislation he's working on in his committees as well. So this is uh, this is leap year, leap day, right? February 29th. So what do folks do that are born on the 29th? Do they typically celebrate the 28th, March 1st? How's that work? Uh, yeah, but their technical age is only counted every leap day or leap. Well, technically it's leap day, but yeah. Uh, what do you mean by technical? Well, you you get some people that'll get up into what would normally be elderly age. Okay. But they've only ever really celebrated something like 18 birthdays. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So are you familiar with uh, you being the learned person that you are? Are you familiar with the history of the Leap Day? I vaguely. year? I mean, it's it comes down to a year. Yeah. One full rotation of the Earth That's around right. the sun 
isn't exactly 365 days. It's roughly 365 and a quarter. And that's even an approximation. That's exactly right. That has to be accounted for every thousand years where there's not a leap day where you would normally have a leap day. <laughs> that's right. Point two four two one nine. Right. <laughs> it's what it is. But because it's close to a quarter of a day every four years, you add those quarters up into a full day and you have a leap day. That's correct. And that didn't really get any traction there until uh, we created and, I guess, adopted the Gregorian calendar, right? Oh, yeah. The Gregorian calendar named after, uh, who was it? Uh, Gregory. Pope Gregory the Pope Gregory. 12th? I think it was the 12th. I think that's right. That's what the, the what comes to mind there. So, yeah, 23 hours and 56 minutes is the actual length of an earthly rotation, a day, if you will. A lunar 13th. month. 13th. 13th, thank you. A lunar month, 27.3 days, but a year, 365.24129 days. So, they've known that this little orbital anomaly is kind of a headache. And especially was a problem back in the days when this is how enterprise was planned, right? Agriculture, mainly, that's the main enterprise. I mean, yeah, the, the, the overarching reason you have a leap day instead of just letting it work itself out is over a long enough time scale, if you just act like a quarter of a day every year doesn't matter, Yeah, you wind up in the future having... Springtime in the Northern Hemisphere starting sometime in August. <laughs> that's right. So they had to fix that old calendar, and that's where Pope Gregory the Thirteenth stepped in, kind of fine-tuned the calendar. And the system devised was that leap years would be skipped in the first year of every century. How about that? Except those whose first two digits were evenly divisible by four. So 1,700, 1,800, 1,900 skipped, lost a leap day. But in 2000, you added one. It's the way they figured it out because it was divisible by four. Every other fourth year of all these centuries would get the old February 29th. Um, And that's when the the calendrical, I think it's the term secondhand, would be adjusted a little bit to account for this anomaly. So, three out of four years, leap year babies have to decide whether to celebrate on Feb 28th or March 1. Or can't you just skip it? I didn't get older this year. That would work, well, that, too. Well, that works once you hit 18. Okay. You don't have a whole lot of rights before then, it feels okay. like. I got you. So, Can't do a whole lot. But here we are, February 29th, and we have to wait four more years, right, before we do that again. But that's where we stand. <laughs> so yesterday, the Mississippi House of Representatives, I guess you could say, made history. We have a an article about it that is passing the Medicaid expansion bill that now will be Taken up over there in the Senate. Of course, the Senate is scheduled to release their own measure. I don't think that's happened just yet. The Mississippi, or pardon me, the Healthy Mississippi, Healthy Mississippi Works Act 
H-M-W-A, as it is known. And that's what Representative Missy McGee is coming in to talk about today. Let's see, what was the count? I believe 20 Republicans either voted against it or did not vote. I know that Representative Kevin Felsher, who's been under the weather, voted for it in committee, but uh, I believe that's right, but did uh, was not available to vote yesterday. He's just one that I know wasn't there, and I think Representative Becky Curry recused herself, if I'm not mistaken. But see, the final tally, what was it, Rhino, like 96 to – to um, 96-20, well, 96-20. So, but a few Republicans, I believe all Democrats supported, a few Republicans uh, did not and uh, peeled off from their Republican colleagues in the House, voted against it. It was presented by Representative Missy McGee. She did, I think, a, a very honorable job of presenting what is extremely complex Legislation, the matter itself, just brutally complex. So, I mean, it essentially passed the House by the old veto-proof majority there, and this does require this measure uh, because you're dealing with a tax situation here, I believe, as our rules uh, are established, the three-fifths vote. Can't, it could not pass on a simple majority, required the three-fifths. So that is where we stand. I just don't know what to expect in the Senate. I would hesitate to handicap. Now, yesterday, uh, based on some feedback I had received, I, I thought that it would be a lot closer, honestly. I didn't think that the vote would be quite this lopsided uh, in favor. But that is what we got, just looking through the list of a few of those who voted in opposition, saw two or three, I believe, from the Mississippi Gulf Coast area that were among them. And then also in, uh, let's see, in the DeSoto County area, Representative Kimberly Remack voted against it, is one. And then Representative Dan Eubanks was also a nay. Just kind of looking down the list here. Uh, Representative Celeste Hurst from the Rankin County area, Central Mississippi, also a nay. Representative uh, Jansen Owen, also a no from the Hattiesburg area, Vince Mangold, Timmy Ladner from the Popperville area, Bill Kincaid from up north. Uh, Representative Jill Ford in uh, my district here in Madison. So just looking through there, it's um, Representative Rodney Hall as well from the DeSoto County area, also a nay. So you get a feel of that. We're talking about Republicans that voted against uh, the measure, but 96-20, the final tally. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Days with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do it. 
government's going to stay open. <laughs> a lot of stuff going on up there in Washington. The government, it looks like, is going uh, to stay open uh, because they have agreed to uh, yet another continuing resolution, as we predicted. But they're supposed to have the actual spending bills uh, in place and voted on. I believe by next week, right? They gave them a week, essentially. So they reached a deal to avert the partial government shutdown over the weekend. Just another continuing resolution. and um, But there's a second deadline coming up by March 8th to fund the Departments of Agriculture, Justice, Interior, Veterans Affairs, and other federal agencies. Again, a new vote coming up on those bills by March 8th. I don't see them passing it, honestly. The leaders said, with respect to these bills, that they are going to adhere to the bipartisan agreement reached last year. Remember that. That was connected to raising the federal government's debt ceiling. Remember, that was the agreement. We'll agree to raise the debt ceiling if if you... We'll agree here, Mr. President, because this was the the leverage in the negotiations from the Republicans. We'll do this as long as you'll agree to hold the spending at the 2022 levels, which means that you'd have to cut 100 plus billion and some change there, which, which is crazy when you think about a 6.3 trillion dollar budget. That's the best we can do, a hundred trillion, uh, pardon me, billion. That ain't squat. Relative to a two trillion dollar deficit, it's five percent of it. When are we going to get serious about the entire deficit? When are we going to get serious about the thirty-four trillion of debt? We're not, that I can tell. But nonetheless, no shutdown. Kick the can at least down the road for a week. I'm just not sure that they're going to get anything done that's passable. The leaders in the House and the Senate said they'll work over the weekend to pass this to get this stopgap bill. Uh, no, that they'll work this week. Pardon me to pass it to get the stopgap bill to keep the thing going for a week, uh, and then they'll start working in earnest on the four bills to keep the government that part of the government going, because that's what expires tomorrow. Remember, it was done in a, in a in a laddered basis, if you will, some expiring tomorrow, some expiring in two weeks. But they have agreed to, to pass a continuing resolution, keep things going for a week, get back on it, try to pass these four bills by next Friday to have a, essentially a you could call it a permanent budget. It's a permanent budget through the end of this fiscal year, which is September 30th. So think about the insanity of that. Here we are in effectively March, starting tomorrow. 
And we're still trying to pass a budget through legislation, through regular order. There are 12 bills that are used to appropriate for the discretionary element of federal spending. We're six months into the year, and we're just now taking care of that because of these continuing resolutions. Just seems upside down and and um, an inappropriate way, at a minimum, to fund the government. But that's how it works. Let's see. We're talking about this in the state of Mississippi, this uh, Medicaid expansion bill that did pass the House yesterday. And, of course, the Senate's working on their version. I think before it's all over with, we'll end up in a conference. There were no amendments, Rhino, that I noticed that were offered and incorporated and deliberated and discussed. And, in fact, after Representative Missy McGee made an impassioned speech, the uh, the members started chanting, vote, 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 there in the chamber. They were ready to vote, and it was done really without fanfare. 96-20, that was the final tally. And, again, this bill headed to the other side of the hall there, Senate. Senate will take theirs up, send it to the House, and we'll end up in conference, that's what I would say at this point. Very complicated. Again, I reiterate to the legislators that might be listening on the app or on supertalk.fm, Mississippi is a conservative state, and there are a lot of conservative issues that are on y'all's plate right now for consideration. Yet this is one of the first things you're going to get done. Doesn't look good. Well, I'll, I'll reiterate my position that I would like to see the governor call a special session to address the PERS issue immediately and to suspend all other legislative activity until we come out of such a special session with a, a viable, tenable economic plan to stabilize the PERS program that that is a, a it's like sitting at your it's like your house and you got your stack of bills and it's just the biggest most painful disgusting one in your stack and you keep putting it to the side and paying the others that happens well, it, a lot it's more like you, every time you open a bill and see how much it's going to cost you you add it to the pile and then hop on the internet and go shopping <laughs> that's right Let's go spend more money, even though we're in the hole over here. And that's kind of the predicament we are presently facing with respect to PERS. And I just believe we ought to we, we ought to focus on it because it's going to require lots of focus. And it is an extremely complicated financial matter. And there are no easy, painless solutions to it. There just aren't. But it is an existing and a legacy, and a real obligation. It ain't going away. Let's get everybody in the building to focus on it until we come up with a plan. And once we do that, then we know how much money is available for new spending. How, how far could we take additional tax cuts? And with respect to new spending, we've got the possibility, though it's it's few years out, uh, of Medicaid, the state's share. But I, but you know something else that's going on is 
the the present traditional Medicaid program, I believe, is requesting in the state of Mississippi requesting an increase because they're being overrun with costs. So they're looking for more money. We got the Department of Transportation. They want a diversion of certain revenue streams to fund more infrastructure in the state. Um, you've got education rewrite of the formula, right? We've got school choice and all these other things that I think are are great issues to be working on and could produce a lot of positive benefit for the state, but we really don't know how much money we got. And I know that sounds oversimplifying it, and it maybe sounds a little um, bit like hyperbole, and it's not intended to be. I'm just facing the fact that we have this real big issue out there, and that's the PERS program. We have an obligation to those in the program uh, to fund their benefits, uh, both present benefit recipients and, and those that are active members paying into the program, fully expecting those benefits are going to be available to them. There's there's an unfunded liability of $25 billion that needs to be addressed. I just would like to see the state address that and honestly put that issue to bed one way or another and know what we're dealing with on an, a, a budgetary basis before we take on new spending. Your, your analogy was perfect. I got all these bills over here, and I'm just going to set them to the side and hop online and go shopping and buy more stuff. Look at that Pokemon card on eBay. <laughs> that is a great analogy here, and that's similar to what we're working with. And I know that the lawmakers and the governor, they, they're aware of this. I'm suggesting the special session because I feel like that was so effective by the governor in calling for a special session to um, to deal with and address this uh, incentive package for these two big economic development projects early on in the session. Those were fantastic, great, historic wins for the state. And I think calling a special session to handle that was absolutely prudent and a great move on the part of the governor. I think that exhibited true leadership there. I just think that works so well. We should follow that model for this extremely critical issue. Coming right back. In the Element Well studio. Stay with us. Bring it on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk, Mississippi. That's kind of when the lyrics were just borderline risque. (laughs) Gary Puckett in the Union Gap. You can go see that one on YouTube. They're performing it, I think, on Ed Sullivan, dressed in uh, their uniforms. You know, they kind of look like sort of cross between glam rock in a military uniform had the epaulets. Oh, gosh. That's back when I don't know that any of them actually played any instruments. 
just sort of faked it. <laughs> but that was Gary Puckett's voice. They are, they are doing the, the vocals there. And he had a great voice. Gary Puckett. That's 67, 68, probably. 68. 68, there you go. I'm just looking at the, their wiki. And bless his heart, past member Paul Wheatbread doesn't even have his own wiki. Oh, geez. He was the drummer. Okay. Well, he fake drumming it, as best I can tell. Okay, the uh, key Fed inflation measure, that's the personal consumption expenditures. That's the one the Fed really likes to pay attention to. It uh, it rose 0.4% for the month, announced this morning, 2.8% from a year ago. So the head, you know, they've got a headline and a core. The headline includes the volatile food and energy categories that increased 0.3 percent, 2.4 percent on a 12-month basis. Jobless claims 215,000 for the week ended February 24th. That's 13,000 more than the previous period and more than the 210,000 estimate. So, uh, kind of a mixed bag of info. The market has been back and forth over that unchanged line. Uh, when we started the program, it was up a few points. Now it's down 100. The NASDAQ is went from being up uh, high for the session, I think 54 or so. Crude oil approaching 90 bucks a barrel. Uh, pardon me, 80 bucks. 80 bucks a barrel. It's $79. 79 Getting close to the $80 a barrel threshold. It has been tracking upward the last couple of weeks. I suspect we'll see that manifest in higher prices at the pump fairly soon here. That's what's going on on the economic front. And the funny money still up. Yes, it is. Bitcoin doing well. The Dow down now, 133. And as we shared with you, the Congress, they're poised to pass a continuing resolution keeping the government afloat for another week. Another week. Uh, they put a deadline of March 8th as the day when they're expected to have passed four major spending bills of the total 12 to fund the government, which has been open for six months already. I mean, it's so backwards. It really is. And the agreement in principle is that these bills will not increase spending above the debt ceiling agreement, which had a provision that would keep spending at the 2022 level, which was is going to require a reduction from 23 fiscal year spending of a hundred million a billion plus some change there. We'll see where that goes. And then it's a short week later they got the other spending bills they got to pass total of 12 again to finance the government's operations through so-called regular order as opposed to these just continuing resolutions that just keep everything level and just says, here's the same amount of money you got last time, just keep that going. That's what it contests, why they call it a continuing resolution. 
Let's see here on the C Spire text line, uh, Johnny in West Point. Fun fact, Scotland in 1288 made it a crime if a man refused a woman's proposal for marriage on leap day. I did not know that. Did you? Oh, yeah. They made a movie about it. Okay. Wasn't aware. How about that? That seems a little harsh, I would say. Yesterday, the president, was it yesterday or day before, had a physical, I think it was yesterday, yeah. And uh, did not take a cognitive test. That's because he didn't feel like he needed one. <laughs> and the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, said, yeah, he didn't do one because it's not necessary, that he's able to multitask and handle all these issues and matters quite deftly uh, at the same time. I'm not sure I'm buying that exactly. I think he spends more time eating ice cream and getting mad at people. It's what that's kind of what the leaked word is. But the polls are saying that the president is simply too old for a second term. I don't think they would say that if he didn't exhibit I guess behavior that demonstrates lack of mental acuity that he's got weak cognition. I, I don't think people would honestly pay attention to the calendar on his body if that were the case. But he gives you reason to be concerned on a regular basis. Mr. Trump, four years younger, doesn't. You may have issues with Mr. Trump, but he doesn't, to me, exhibit any kind of cognitive limitations or, or defects the way the president does. I'm trying to be objective about that. I'm sure there are people out there in text line land that will jump all over me for that. But I don't think I'm varying significantly with the sentiments of the majority of the population as far as that aspect. Now, you may have other reasons to dislike the former president, but I don't see how anybody who's being objective and fair and and thoughtful in their analysis would say, well, this guy's clearly a superior or inferior cognitively to the other one. That's pretty evident. You're just not wanting to accept reality, if that's the case. And that is the vast majority of people that have a seething hatred for the former president. Yeah. They don't live in reality. They live in their own little la-la land. Well, I'd like to see folks get more objective about stuff like that. Honestly. So back here at home, like we were saying, we've got, um, oh, one more thing I forgot to mention on the national front is that the state of Illinois, the land of Lincoln, has seen fit to ban Mr. Trump from appearing on the ballot. Here we go again. And Illinois, Illinois, pardon me, uh, um, judge. Well, no, at this point, this feels like Illinois. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> Maybe that's where I got it from. Announced uh, late yesterday that he's been removed over his alleged role in the January 6, 2021. They're calling it a capital riot. Cook County, that's where Chicago is located. Circuit Judge Tracy Porter. Barred Mr. Trump from the Illinois ballot one month after an anti-Trump challenge was dismissed by the State Board of Elections. Wow. How about that? So here we go again. Now, we're still waiting for the Supreme Court, right, to hand down their verdict, their ruling, 
on Mr. Trump being removed from the Colorado and Maine ballots. That's where that's gone, to the Supreme Court. Also, whether or not he is entitled to presidential immunity, the Supreme Court announced yesterday with respect to the January 6th events, the Supreme Court announced yesterday they will, in fact, hear that case, won't stay it in the lower uh, courts. That is scheduled for, I believe, April 22nd coming up. So you got all this stuff going on during the election, and now you got the Supreme Court. And I think between now and then, you got the hush money case in New York. Adult film star Stormy Daniels. It is alleged Mr. Trump paid her to be quiet about an alleged affair as, as part of the election uh, to keep that out of the public square back in the 2016 election. I believe it was the 16 cycle. So that's what's going on up there in Washington. Again, here at home, back to that. The big news, I guess, yesterday that that uh, you can learn about at supertalk.fm, and that is Mississippi, the Mississippi House passing the Medicaid expansion bill on a tally of 96 to 20. Of course, I'm sure that Thomas and Greenwood stayed up all night Worried about that. Let's see what he said here. Congratulations to the House in proving that a Republican supermajority is not a defense against socialism. Mississippi is no longer conservative if this passes. Thomas, best I can tell, based on your conservative standards, no state, nation, organization, or entity is conservative except you. Right? Because it's based on your definition, your self-acclaimed definition. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. Do you suffer from... Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. On Super Talk Mississippi. My daddy spent his life looking up at the sky. He cussed, kicked the dust, saying, Son, it's way too dry. The clouds up in the city, the weatherman complains. But where I come from, rain is a good thing. Rain makes corn, corn makes whiskey. We are back in the Element Well studio. The Sports Talk Mississippi team is going to be live at M-Trade Park tomorrow to kick off the spring seasons of baseball, fast pitch, and soccer. Nearly 150 teams will be in Oxford this weekend for U-Triple-S-A baseball. For the full schedule of tournaments this spring, visit mtradepark.com. Don't miss the boys on Sports Talk live from M Trade Park in Oxford tomorrow. If you're going to play, play M Trade. We're back in the Element Well studio. 
And, uh, Rhino, you want to give an update on what's going on with our transmitter here locally, right? 97.3? Yeah, WFMN is currently down as far as over the air. The transmitter had a bit of an issue, and the engineers are currently working on it. So if you're in the Jackson metro area or central Mississippi, you can't hear me telling you this. But uh, we are still live for those of you in the area on supertalk.fm or the Supertalk app. Or if you've got C Spire TV, find the Weather Channel. We're right next to it at Channel 70. There you go. All right. So uh, back on this situation in the state of Mississippi with this passage of the bill that would expand Medicaid. And, and, and again, I think it's worth uh, from time to time just sort of breaking that down, what that means. Medicaid, very simply, a program that was passed into law at the federal level 1965. It is jointly funded by the federal government and the states. It is administered and operated by the states at the state level in accordance with, for the most part, with federal guidelines as promulgated by the Center for Medicaid and Medicare, CMS. That's the organization. So... uh, that uh, the expansion provision, I'm sorry, somebody just sent me something. I was reading. I lost my train of thought. Apologize for that. Yeah, you, get, you have to be careful with that, don't you, Rhino, when you're doing this? And, oh, yeah. And sometimes things come up. I thought I better check that, so I apologize for that. But expansion, what that really means is that the coverage groups that were included in the original bill, the original legislation, the original law in 1965, did not, this is usually a shock to most people, did not include so-called non-disabled adults. If you're between the ages of 19 and 64 and you're not disabled, you're not blind, you're not disabled, you're obviously not um, a, a child, and you're not pregnant. Well, all those coverage groups have existed since 1965. What expansion added in 2010 via passage of the Affordable Care Act, so-called Obamacare, was the coverage group of able-bodied adults. If their income, all, all the Medicaid programs, all based on income, you have to, have to qualify by having a household income, living in a household with an income below certain income thresholds, depending on the coverage group is uh, how those thresholds are determined. For the able-bodied adult coverage group, which would be eligible based on expansion, which is optional to the states, this bill would would uh, accept that option, if you will, would approve that option, this bill that passed the Mississippi House. Those folks have to make less than 138% of the federal poverty level which for an individual is roughly $20,000 a year in order to qualify for this new expansion coverage group. But the state of Mississippi is also going to request what's called a waiver as part of this bill, as part of this legislation, Section 1115 waiver from the federal CMS to stipulate that a person must work to qualify for these benefits at least 20 hours a week and there's some other things they could do, be a full-time student, for example, 
or be involved in workforce development training, I believe. I'll, I'll verify that here in a minute. But in general, you got to work 20 hours a week or be a student, and you qualify for coverage. Um, and the coverage from the Division of Medicaid would not cost those enrolled anything. That's the way it works. There's occasional little co-pays here and there, but for the most part, it's no out-of-pocket cost. Uh, that is what passed the Mississippi House of Representatives yesterday by a tally of a count of 96 in favor and 20 opposed. There was a question uh, whether or not any Democrats voted against it. I do not believe so. Was there a runner? Who was it? There wasn't. Right. Okay. Thank you. Um, so no Democrats opposed the measure. There were some 20 Republicans, but again, one recused herself, Representative Becky Curry, and then Representative Kevin Felsher was, was unavailable. Um, but that's what happened yesterday. We're going to talk more about this to Representative Missy McGee at 1120. Right now, it's Fox News, Super Talk News. And now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Hour two of Middays. We are live in the Element Wealth Studio on this Friday Eve. (laughs) So, uh, back to this situation with the Medicaid expansion bill that passed. I mean, that's the big news coming out of the Capitol these days. By the way, Rhino, I learned next week, Education Week. That's when they're going to take up. These dicey education bills, uh, in particular, the restructuring, rework of the formula to fund public schools in the state of Mississippi, K-12. We, of course, had the roundtable of Representatives Rob Robertson and Kent McCarty on discussing that. Looks like next Tuesday they're going to talk about that, get it out of committee. We will see. I do think that... Uh, that formula makes a lot more sense than the Byzantine MAEP formula we have today. But I'll say again, if that is going to increase funding to education, and again, this isn't a statement or a position in favor of that or in opposition to it, I just think we got to resolve this first thing first. I really do. I think that is an existing, legacy, outstanding real issue that needs attention and needs to be resolved before we move forward. Back to this Medicaid deal, there is, as we were talking about in the last segment, the plan that Mississippi intends to implement includes a request for a waiver from CMS, federal CMS, those are the folks who run the Medicaid program in 
regulate it as they do Medicare as well. So they would have to approve it. So it's it doesn't have to go through Congress. It gets approved at the agency level. And they allow states some latitude in how they operate their Medicaid programs and things that would be done that the state a state wants to do outside of the basic set of rules require a waiver. If you want to do that, you want the federal government to pay for it, essentially, we have to approve that through this waiver process. So this bill instructs the Division of Medicaid to uh, complete the waiver application, send it to CMS, and, and uh, have it approved. That Those provisions, the request of the state or by the state, pardon me, of a CMS would be to implement a work requirement. Work 20 hours a week, and I did look it up, or be a full-time student, or or be enrolled full-time in workforce training. Workforce training. Those would satisfy the work requirement. Now, the Biden administration has indicated... From day one, when the president took over, we're not going to approve any work requirements for Medicaid. And so it's largely believed, and I'm one of them, I've said this on the program, that it's fairly slim chance that CMS would approve Mississippi's work requirement waiver. There's another aspect of the waiver, and and it, it gets a little more complicated, but it is an effort by the state to avoid folks currently covered by their group plans offered by their employers to drop that coverage, to voluntarily terminate that coverage so they could go enroll in Medicaid if, again, their income is below that 138% level. They'd still have to qualify. But it's, it's the effort there is if you're on your employer coverage, stay there. Medicaid's not an option for you. That does require a waiver. That's not something that is uh, built into existing code, existing uh, regulatory framework as promulgated by the CMS. Two things, then. Work requirement and the waiting period of 12 months. If you do disenroll and you intend to move to Medicaid disenroll from your employer coverage. You sit out 12 months, at that point you're good to go. That essentially means for 12 months you either don't have insurance or you're obtaining insurance outside of the group coverage offered by your employer, which is brutally expensive. If you're making 138% of the federal poverty level, you probably aren't doing that. That's going to cost you eight, nine grand a year plus out-of-pocket in deductibles, co-pays, and co-insurance of up to 9500 a year. That pretty much consumes, if you, God forbid, got sick and had to use your insurance, pretty much consumes almost 100% of your income would go to that. So i got to tell you, Rhino, in the last 24 hours, I've had a change of heart on my position as to whether or not federal CMS will approve Mississippi's waiver. I felt certain, honestly, they would not consistent with what they've been saying, consistent with the fact that nobody else has even applied for one and received it, 
and 12 of the 13 states that did receive work requirement waivers from the Trump administration have since dropped it. They got sued. Uh, they lost those lawsuits. It was just such a hassle, and they dropped it. I'm actually leaning more towards the Biden administration approving Mississippi's waiver. And here's why. And, and again, it's completely speculative. It's just a theory. The Biden administration gets Mississippi's waiver, says, Mississippi? Wow, that is a deep red state. It is one that has lots of uncovered working poor people who could benefit from this. And we got these other nine states, all of which are red states that haven't expanded, haven't opted in the program. Maybe this one is different. We'll we'll approve, perhaps with some some amendments to Mississippi's waiver with respect to work requirements that Mississippi would then have to either approve or reject. Right? You'd have to go back to the legislature because if CMS says, "Well, we could do this, but not what you're asking for," and I'm just speculating, I don't know that any of that would happen. But I'm thinking CMS may say, "This is our chance to get Mississippi." to participate in the program, a state we never thought, the last one of all the ten that haven't expanded, likely, the the most unlikely. This is our chance to get them in the program, and maybe that will kind of break the logjam for the other nine. But more importantly, we could point to Mississippi in an election year as seeing the wisdom of, of adopting this program that is a Democrat creation. Their legislature is already assuming this thing gets passed, veto-proof, in the House, or, I mean, pardon me, the Senate. It's veto-proof in the House. Might be veto-proof in the Senate. Might go down. Don't know at this point. But let's just assume we get to that point. The governor submits this this deal, and if it got to that point, I'm pretty certain. By the way, it takes three-fifths vote anyhow in the Senate. Of the Mississippi Senate, and the the, uh, Biden administration says, wow, Mississippi's on board with this program. Look at this lopsided vote, if you will, in their legislature. Now, my opinion is the governor, who is staunchly opposed to this, would likely, seeing that it's not, seeing that it is veto-proof, likely let it become law without signing it. He just wouldn't sign it. That's my theory. Uh, though the Speaker of the House thinks that he may look at the numbers, and Tate's extremely good at that, the governor, he may look at the numbers and say, this does make economic sense. Because it, it is, for the first several years, and maybe even thereafter, depending on how you look at the 4% premium tax on the MCOs, it, it does produce a net positive economic benefit to the state, substantial one. Certainly in the four years. And by the way, this this bill has a four-year repealer in it. Now, you and I both know that's highly unlikely once we were to implement something like this that we, let's say that 200,000 people sign up as estimated. We just pull the rug out from under them and say, sorry, we're, we're discontinuing this program. That's my opinion on that. But I, I, the main point I wanted to make is that I'm sort of feeling like there's a, a greater than zero chance, at least that federal CMS 
may see this as an opportunity from a political perspective, because it is an agency that is is uh, controlled by the president. And the president's running for re-election and is a political animal like everybody else up there. Might see this as, I guess, a, an opportunity to score some political points. Just a theory. But we'll learn more about this on the other side of the break when Representative Missy McGee uh, joins us. Stay with us. We're in the Element Well studio. Middays with Gerard Gibbons. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. In the Element Well studio, we welcome now from the Mississippi House of Representatives, Representative Missy McGee represents District 102, which incorporates Forest and Lamar counties down there in the Pine Belt. The hub of city area serves as the chair of the House Medicaid Committee. Representative McGee, it's good to have you on the program. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, Gerard. I appreciate you inviting me on today. Absolutely. So I know it's been extremely uh, busy in your world, especially with this, uh, really, it's historic legislation. It's historic because, uh, I'll just say this, that that this is um, something that's been considered quite a bit over the years, going back to when it was made available to the states, and that was in 2014. And since then, it's gotten much discussion, much deliberation, but really little no, or to no action. So now we have action, big action. We, we did. It passes overwhelmingly in the House. It did. We, had a, um, we felt like we had really strong support. Um, the vote showed that yesterday. We had 98 yes votes. Um, so we were super pleased about that and, um, you know, knew, knew that we had um, the, the Mississippi House was um, committed to um, advancing this. It was Speaker White's. Um, he has said it is a priority, a top priority for him. And so I'm really grateful that he has um, authored the bill. He moved it through. Um, we got it through committee earlier this week unanimously, and um, then yesterday on the floor, 98 members of the House voted yes, and not a single question was even asked. So I was shocked at that. I, I know. So we were um, we're very very pleased, and we're looking forward to it making it over to the Senate, and hopefully it will be met with the same success over there. So very very excited about it. 
It's splitting hairs, I know, but I just want to clarify. We had in our news department 96. Yes. So what were we missing there? Um, I noticed that, too. So I think we had two people who did not vote when the vote was called on, and then they went back and recorded a vote. Okay. So if you don't if you don't cast a vote, if you're out of the chamber or whatever, then um, you can come back in and just record a vote. So I, I noticed that that changed, too, and I think that must be the reason. What was one of those uh, Representative Felsher? No, I think he's ill. Actually, that's right. That's what I heard. That's what I heard because because I, I know that um, I, in talking to him, he would have voted yes had yes. he been and present. So, yes, I was about to say. I think we had a couple of people out yesterday, and I think that actually, if if they had been there, we might have hit one hundred. Okay. And Representative Curry, I believe, recused herself. Is that right? But I think she was one that went back and voted when I okay. looked. Okay. So she, I think she makes up one of those um, one of those votes that we were that was that she was missed. She was, I guess, not in the chamber or something. Okay. Yesterday, well, it, it, it doesn't change the outcome, and and um, and and even, I guess, the protection the bill has from from a veto. Those two votes don't change it. Those right. aren't necessary. But, but, but we like, want to get it right. We though. do. We, yeah. We're happy to have um, all the votes we can get. So 98 is great, um, and we're we're thrilled to to receive such a strong showing. So you made a, a rather impassioned speech when you presented the bill, um, and I heard lots lots of positive feedback uh, on that. Just to let you know, thank you, and uh, including from uh, around the halls here, where folks were were tuned in and paying attention to it, and thought you did a really good job of of presenting what is. You and I both know is an extremely complex subject. I mean, this is this is really difficult so to get me- your head around. Yes, Medicaid is complicated for sure. And um, you know, you said that this has been discussed for a while, but you know, not really at the Capitol. So we, it's is his. It was really historic because I believe last week when we had a couple of hearings of which you were a part of one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, those were the first time I believe. Now, look, this is just my seventh year. But from what I've heard, that was the first time that we've ever had Medicaid hearings at the Capitol. OK. And um, and so to have hearings and then to actually bring a bill out of committee and then to um, actually, you know, and next day bring it out on the floor and have it pass is truly historic and so um i felt like that this moment was serious enough that i wanted to take a, a few extra minutes to um you know really um emphasize the gravity of, of what we were looking at and how many mississippians that this really means that um, will be helped hard-working low-income mississippians that um need need health care and we know that we are an unhealthy state we are um you know number one in preventable deaths we have the shortest life expectancy of any state we're number one in maternal infant and fetal mortality i mean those are those are places that we don't want to be you know and as the leaders of mississippi i think that we we are have a responsibility to try to make changes to address those things and to continue just to say no, you know, without some other um, suggestion or, or another idea of how to make things better. Well, that's just unacceptable. So I think we put forth a, a great bill yesterday. And while Medicaid is complicated, the bill really is not. It's not. I've read it. I agree. Um, Pretty so, straightforward. Yeah, it really is. And so um, it was easy for folks to understand. And um, so, again, it was it was a big day. And um, I'm looking forward to it forward to it making it um, further down the process now. So I, I do want to clarify, I agree with you that this is not a subject that really got talked a lot about officially in the Capitol, but it got talked about unofficially right. in the Capitol. You're okay. right. Fair and that, enough. Fair and so, enough. Right. So yes. 
But I agree, right. there wasn't any there debate were, or deliberation. No ba- yes, right. that's right. No debate. Um, you know, no. Um, no I mean, and, and true, bills would be introduced every year, yeah. and they would never make it out of committee. Yeah. So. Okay. So here, so here we are. Um, yeah, I think it's, it makes sense to just go through it. I mean, I've done it several times on the program, but I, I think uh, perhaps uh, with, with you, President, I know that um, you are one of the authors uh, of the bill, along with um, the Speaker of the House. It's uh, again, it is straightforward. I, I like the way it was drafted. I, I do have a, a couple of questions about things that I was confused about to make sure that this was the intent, um, it, as written at least, as drafted or not. But do you, do you want to? Maybe it makes sense to go through the financial aspect of this because that's the that's the key part of it to me. I've explained the five percent. Um, incentive, if you will, on right. traditional Medicaid that is on the table for two years that looks like would produce nearly $700 million over that two-year period right. based on how large our traditional Medicaid program right. is. So we got that, and then we got an additional 4% premium tax on the managed care organizations. And according to the legislation, uh, this new coverage group would be administered by the managed care organization because we also have a fee-for-service component. Um, And that's where it gets kind of, whoo, you start losing people. And I I get it. I mean, really. But the bottom line is there are third parties who manage some of Mississippi's Medicaid. They're third-party private companies. We literally, we, the taxpayers, the state pays them premiums to to manage that population, those enrollees. They handle all the claims, pay the providers, do all the enrollment and all that other stuff. They pay a tax like every other insurer does in the state That's of Mississippi. Correct. And at three percent, I believe, That's of premiums. Right. That's right. This is an additional four percent. Yes, it is. And that that calculate. By the way, that's on the traditional premiums that they're getting on traditional Medicaid plus expanded Medicaid. The four percent is. Is that right? That's right. So that amounts to about 150 million bucks a that year. Is, that is what we've been told. That is the figure that we've had some experts kind of running the, the the numbers on that, and they're telling us that that should bring in about 150 million dollars a year, and that the state support sh- for um, the expansion population is also about $150 million a year. Obviously, it's a 90-10 um, match. So federal government pays 90% of the expansion population's, um, you know, picks up the tab for that, and the state picks up the the other 10. And so we believe with the assessment on the, MC, the Medicaid MCOs that that will bring in about $150 million a year, and we believe that's about what it will cost to run the program on an annual basis, state share, state support. So if it's $150 million a year, and we're going to get somewhere between 600, let's look at the low end, 600 to 700 million in the form of an incentive to expand that's tacked on to our existing traditional Medicaid. That means just the money we're getting from the federal government covers at least four years of the state's expense. That's right. So the incentive on our traditional Medicaid, which we get an, an additional 5% on our, our FMAP, our match, mm-hmm. um, it must be used on the traditional Medicaid program. However, we also have an assessment on hospitals that we use for that program right now. So we can use that on the I expansion. You. I got you. Bottom line is it's kind yeah. of fungible anyhow. It, yeah, but it all works. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does. we got Representative Missy McGee in the Element Well studio. We're coming right back.
Rogers. It's time for Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. We're back in the Element Well studio. Representative Missy McGee, our guest from District 102, that's Forrest and Lamar counties, the chair of the Mississippi House Medicaid Committee. So we were just talking about the economics of this, but there, you know, when I testified last week, Representative McGee, I started out by saying, you know, there's health and then there's health care. And, and there is an important distinction, and I think it's unfortunately accurate to say we have challenges with both here sure. in Mississippi. We have a, an unhealthy population. We know that. And uh, we, we produce uh, statistically uh, overall the, the worst health outcomes. Our, our folks are just not as healthy as they should be, and there's a number of reasons for those, uh, those outcomes. One of those is just lack of access to to primary care, preventative medicine. The good news is we got a ton of that these days. We have, as a, as a, uh, a society, as an economy, we have created so much diagnostic, uh, te- so many diagnostic tests and wellness tests and exams that can find things before they fester and, and, and grow to be a bigger problem. And often they're in your body and you don't know anything about it. I, I, testified that last week i'm one of those that whose life was saved as a result of that right so we want people in our in our state to have access to primary care to keep them out of the er's and to hopefully find these problems before they get to be way more serious so they can be treated fairly easily and inexpensively now in many cases. Well, you're right. Um, I mentioned that in my in my presentation of the bill yesterday. You know, we're, we are hoping that individuals will take um, – Take responsibility and of their of their health care if they have access to care. I mean, some people have poor access, some people have no access. Mm. But um, we are hoping that that folks will find a primary care home where they can be treated for high blood pressure and diabetes and um, things such as that before it becomes. Um, you know, a really big problem for them. And then, you know, if they're so, you know, they have a heart attack or stroke, then you're looking at somebody potentially not being able to work, not being a part of the workforce and, um, perhaps on disability. I mean, those are, those are, that's a terrible direction for that, um, for people to go. I mean, it's expensive for the state. It's, it's, um, not good for, um, our population. And, um, you know, certainly those that are living in poverty, if you, if you can't work, if you can't, if you're not healthy, you can't work, you know. And so we're hoping that folks will, um, you know, be able to be treated for those kind of conditions. Also, you said, you know, like screening for cancer, um, you know, basic screenings like colonoscopies and um, mammograms, things such as that. Those are highly, highly curable um, forms of cancer if they are caught early, early right. detection. How often do we hear that? All the time. But so many of our, um, so many Mississippians don't have access to that. And so we're hoping that this group that as um, 138% um, of the poverty level or below 
will um, have those opportunities to uh, to you know have have the care they need to have a healthy life and to be a part of the uh, the workforce and um, take care of their families. So one of the things that it gets brought up a lot uh, by folks who are concerned and reluctant to uh, take this on is that the federal government may alter its 90% contribution to the expansion coverage group, uh, which is being relied upon in, in our budgeting and in our financial models. So uh, tell the audience what happens to the Mississippi's program should the federal government reduce the federal match here of 90%. So we included in the bill a provision that said if the if the FMAP, the 90% FMAP on this expansion population ever um, goes below 90%, that um, the program will cease and we will begin to disenroll this these um, individuals that are on this part of the our Medicaid program. But um, Gerard, you and I both know that that's not going to happen. The federal government is not going to drop below 90%. Um, this program has um, been around for 10 years now. And even when we had a Republican president and Republican House and Senate, they they did not reduce the FMAP on on the expansion population. So um, we put that in there to make some folks feel comfortable. And um, but um, and, and I guess as a as a backstop, just in case. Yeah. But um, I, and I, I've also heard that it is a very typical provision in other states. Okay. Um, expansion bills as well. Okay. So um, I think I think you would find that in in a bunch of um, especially in a bunch of eleven fifteen waivers that CMS has approved. But um, we we don't anticipate that the federal government will ever drop below ninety percent. That they could change the, the traditional FMAP structure. As well, if they sought to just reduce the money going to the states, uh, the the uh, the federal government has a printing press. We don't have one of those in the state of Mississippi, of course. We do not. <laughs> we do a little, not. Little different. All right, so that's that's one of the provisions that protects against any any sort of uh, uh, future wilting of the federal government from the, the state's expense share. And then we also have the this provision, this this work waiver provision. But that's a little different. We we are requiring that, but uh, by a certain date. And if it doesn't happen by a certain date, then the Division of Medicaid is still instructed to implement the program. Talk about that. That's right. So um, the so section one of the bill, the first part of the bill is is it directs the Division of Medicaid to seek a um, eleven fifteen waiver from CMS, which includes a work requirement in there to um, provide coverage for this this nineteen um, ages nineteen to sixty four um, part of our population that goes up to one hundred thirty eight percent of the federal poverty level. Um, so we are very hopeful that our Division of Medicaid will go up to D.C. and um, negotiate this quickly and that, and I really enjoyed what you were saying in this segment before I sat down, that you have a little optimism that maybe Mississippi's different. And um, Speaker White said the same thing in his remarks yesterday at the press conference that I think there is a chance that CMS may say, you know, um, we we need this deep red state and, um, and Mississippi is um, the poorest and one of the sickest and um, our health, our metrics, our healthcare health metri- metrics are not very good, and so they could really, really make a difference for us. And clearly, we have sent a bill with a strong, I mean, a strong majority of the House of Representatives, and I'm hoping the Senate will be the, the same. And and maybe they'll take a look at it and say, you know what, we're going to grant this work requirement. And um, you know, we're counting on the Division of Medicaid to go up there and give it their best shot. You know, you never know until you ask. Right. And um, and I think every. Everyone wanted a work requirement in the bill. Um, the the 
or, you know, the Republicans certainly felt more comfortable adding that work requirement to the bill, wanted to make sure that this this is a bill for low-income workers. And so we added that to the bill. Um, and um, we're optimistic. Now, Section 2 of the bill says that if CMS does not approve the waiver, that um, by the end of September of this year, that these provisions will go into effect um, just in a state plan amendment, which is um, it will just become a part of our state Medicaid plan. Um, that section does cannot have a work requirement in it. So Section 2 of the bill does not have the work requirement. But, um, but you know, Gerard, we know that this population is working. You know, um, so I think all the studies I've seen, they, they're – these people are working. Are there some people that m- might possibly get on that are are not working or they're not a full-time student or they're not in some type of workforce training? Sure. You know, certainly that's possible. Um, but I would say to that, regardless of if, if we get the waiver or not, that we are seeking to help Mississippians, low-income working Mississippians, of which we believe the vast majority of this population um, will will be working, and so to me, it's not worth you know not helping that population if we have a few people that that we help as well. And maybe maybe they're not working, maybe they can't work. I, I don't know, but um, I don't. I certainly would not want to hold this bill back or not be successful and have to wait for another year or a, or another couple of years before we help. You know, the folks in Mississippi, and the goal is to help low-income um, working Mississippians. And with if it, we get it in the 11 and 15 waiver with the work requirement, that helps them. If for some reason CMS does not approve that, then I believe Section 2 kicks in as a backup, and we still get the program. But we should point out that it has a repealer in it in it four does. years, right? It so does. if there are those who have voted for this because of the work requirement, and are optimistic about that, and this thing goes uh, into effect, and we implement the program without the work requirement, come back in four years, they could vote against it, saying, well, I didn't get a work requirement, and, and we would dismantle the program. That's true. So we put a repealer in it. I mean, we've tried to put everything in this bill to make everybody feel comfortable. Anybody that was a little nervous about some of their provisions, we have tried to cover all those bases. So, yes, it has a four-year repealer in it, which really means we have to do nothing. It repeals. Right. So, um, That's true. Right. So there, you don't have, have to vote to re-approve yes, it, essentially. So we would yes. have to, in four years, we would have to come back and renew the program right. um, if – it's a disaster, which I, we do not believe it would be. But, you know, um, let's just be the devil's advocate on this and say, um, you know, cost too much. Too many people are on whatever the reason. Our health our health metrics are not better. Our outcomes are not better. Then and we're not satisfied with the program. It just simply will go away. Okay. On the other side of the break, if you can hang around, I got I got a question about what I think may cause some people to fall through the cracks. Okay. And I'll ask you that on the other side of the break. It's Representative Missy McGee in the Element Well studio. Hello. Come on. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi.
Steely Dan there, Rhino. We're back in the Element Well studio visiting with Representative Missy McGee talking about this uh, Medicaid expansion bill, which did uh, pass by an overwhelming margin in the Mississippi House of Representatives. It was uh, championed by Representative McGee, presented by Missy, uh, Representative McGee, and also authored by the Speaker of the House, Correct. Jason White. He's the primary author, uh, along with you as well. So, and and I will say this: this, this is a very complicated subject, as you know. But the bill's not. I mean, it's it's pretty easy to read. Honestly, you don't have to have a, a a doctor and a lawyer and an insurance person and a Medicaid person <laughs> next to you. To, but usually, that's what you got to have to talk about this subject. Here. You're right, and um and. I was grateful for that because I had to be able to understand it to present it. But um, it's interesting. It doesn't have to be that complicated. There's a, there are lots of ins and outs to Medicaid, and um, and many, many people know way more than I do. But the, the bill, as it is written, was easy to explain. I think the members of the House understood it. And um, so I, I was pleased. I mean, I think people thought we were going to have some 140-page bill when it rolled out, when it hit the bill status on Monday. It's it barely 20 four pages yeah so um you know and i think that's good because i think think people who are interested need to be able to understand it i'm not a lawyer um i sometimes i think that i would this job would be a lot easier if i was because um of reading all these bills and things such as that but um and i'm not a lawyer most people out there aren't and so anybody can read this bill i think sure. and understand i um, agree uh what the intent is my question about the work requirements okay. and 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 it, you may or may not know the answer and that's fine at this point but so do i uh, what from an eligibility perspective let's say i'm not working whatsoever because that's who we're trying to get to here we're trying to get people off the sidelines into the workforce we're hoping that having access to some sort of insurance coverage would do that, would motivate them. We, we, you know, we all know, we talk about it from the governor down to our low labor participation rate right. is mm-hmm. a problem in our state. Our state could be much more prosperous if that weren't the case. So 47%, I think, is the latest that are on the sidelines, not working. All right, so I'm not working, and all of a sudden I have this opportunity to get coverage, insurance coverage through Medicaid if I go to work 20 hours a week. So do I have to work for a certain period of time to qualify? How does that work? Is it kind of done in arrears? Okay, I'm going to work. I'm going to go ahead and sign up for Medicaid. And then um, over the next six months, I just decide working's not for me. How do we manage all that? Well, the Division of Medicaid makes those determinations and eligibility, and so they have a way um, that they, you know, they they check the current Medicaid. I mean, on eligibility. So whatever the eligibility requirements for the group is, 
they set those regulations. They they determine those. It's income eligibility primarily it now. Is, but, um, but, you know, whether you're still working, whether you're not, um, if your income level has increased, obviously, you know, if your income level increases, then you may, may be beyond. That's the big one. 138 percent. Yeah. So, um, but they do that now. You they know, do. so on the traditional Medicaid, you know, um, take, for example, you know, pregnant women. Yep. So I believe the um, federal poverty level limit is 194 percent for pregnant That's women. Right. And so, you know, they they check all that out. And we don't we don't outline all those okay. details in the okay. bill. And, you know, we did have some questions just around the Capitol. Well, what if this? What if that? But, you know. We can't possibly put no. every single detail of how Medicaid will run this program in the code, you know. Agree. And so we leave that flexibility to the division. Um, they know how to run Medicaid. And so when they are doing their determinations and determining eligibility, that, you know, we leave it to them to figure out if that person is meeting the criteria and are eligible under the law. Yeah, and the main thing I was looking for there is, do I have to go work for a certain period of time to qualify? The bill doesn't speak to that. I didn't says, think so. It says 20 hours. Okay. So that's part-time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we've even thought about, rather than number of hours worked, perhaps we just need to show, um, like, a W-2 or something like that. I mean, that and, – and, and honestly, that – that may be an area that we could look at as this continues to kind of make it through the process. Um, so, um, so you know, I'm sure more work will be done. I think we have got a really strong bill, really good framework for how we would like the, the program to be set up. And um, as we continue in our conversation with the Senate, you know, um, we may, be, may tweak a thing or two. I got you. Before you go, I, I would just offer this uh, um, suggestion, I guess. Please, Which is, let's make sure that Drew Snyder and his team have the resources they need to administer this thing. Absolutely. For sure. I know you guys have thought about that. I just want to add my two cents of emphasis to that. I'm sure that um, Drew Snyder and that gang will appreciate that, (laughs) and we will will certainly do all we can to to make that happen. It's hard. Thanks. It is hard. Thank you, Gerard. Coming right back. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It's hour three of middays. We are live in the Element Well studio on this Friday Eve. Little rain supposed to move into the area later on today, tomorrow, and then clear up for the weekend, I believe. But it's certainly a little chillier than it has been earlier in the week. We welcome to the Element Well studio now Senator Tyler McCon represents District 31, which incorporates Lauderdale, Newton, and Scott County, serves as the chair of the Senate Forestry Committee, vice chair of the Agriculture Committee and also uh, quite successful in the agricultural industry. Right there, uh, Senator? We have, and, and that's actually been updated a little bit, Gerard. I appreciate okay, you having yeah. me here today. You know, yeah. uh, I was moved to your vice chair of Judd A. now. That's and, right. Uh, you told me that. So, yes. And I picked up part of Rankin County, so don't get me that, in trouble that, by not, right. not mentioning Leesburg out there. Oh, so that's right. Good folks out there, for sure. Well, but, I forgot we had redistricting, and oh, so yeah. we, we got some slices here and there of some counties. Hey. But we still we still got our ag. We've got a pretty good vice chair with Andy Barry over there.
there on ag now yeah. so we're happy to have him there uh, right so just came into the senate right yeah just yeah. came in came i got a little the experience out there with cattlemen's Cattleman association, association you know? i was gonna say and a cattle farmer himself is that cattle right? farmer yeah. himself good guy thought so ran into him in the capitol i believe it was yesterday as yeah. a matter of fact so yeah yeah, uh, good guy. I think uh, welcome uh, new member of the Mississippi State Senate. All right, so we've been talking a lot about, of course, as you know, about Medicaid, but we are an agriculture state. We, we are an right? ag state. I know that it's a it's a busy time at the legislature, and there's so many things going on that you've got so many topics out there. Uh, we are still a, a huge agriculture state. It's it's our commodity here. We're good at it, and uh, we like feeding people, you know? <laughs> and I'm glad you do. <laughs> and, in fact, uh, let's be honest, the state of Mississippi feeds a whole bunch of people. A whole bunch of people from the coast all the way up north. Uh, you know, I saw there was a bill out there talking about the sweet data because uh, people don't realize the number of sweet potatoes are grown in, in northern Mississippi. I mean, yeah. You look on the coast down there, you see the amount of uh, blue crabs and oysters that we ship all over the all over the world, and you know, and all the other ag products that are out there. In our yeah, state. yeah, big time. All right, so tell us about some of the legislation you're, you're working on uh, well, in that forestry committee. Well, you know, uh, I, I got uh, the uh, the distinct honor of working with our foreign ownership. Uh, yeah, bill this year, and uh, I, I, the last time you and I were on here, we talked about it in general terms, and now we've got a bill out there that is uh, headed to our Judiciary A Committee uh, for review. There, we uh, we sent it through Judge A this time because you put a bunch of attorneys in there, and they'll they'll figure it out or they'll mess it up. One of the two. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, this is something that numerous states right have taken up, and That's some right. have actually passed legislation. I know neighboring Arkansas uh, has uh, a law in place. What, what are you thinking about for ours here? Well, we've got a we got a bill out there, and the House actually used the language and moved it forward, and we're so happy to see the House moving it. Uh, I think we've only got one small technical correction. I think that's moving from corporation to company on where it says limited liability in there. But uh, the biggest thing we're trying to do is balance that between ownership and development in the state of Mississippi. And uh, if you know, we had a huge announcement recently, and it, it involves some foreign entities that are coming in and being a part of, uh, I believe, one of the, the battery plants. Yep, Marshall uh, County. And uh, th- those folks were, were gracious enough to work with us and, and not uh, just to get discouraged when they heard that we were working through this. But, uh, you know, we're just trying to be sure that, that those who are our adversaries are not entitled to the the majority ownership interest of land here in Mississippi. Okay. So how do we how do we define adversaries? What qualifies a nation or any other entity as an adversary? Whether whether we like it or not, you know, the federal government does do a few things, and one of those is they determine uh, through the Secretary of Commerce, they have a list. Okay. Uh, and generally there there's a big six of them and and naming them I'm sure I'll forget one, but you know, China's one of our biggest, uh Russia, um, you know, Iran, you know, and, the, and those are those are big big countries that we don't necessarily want here owning all of our our ag land. Okay, and this is ag and forestry land. I've been asked why didn't we go into the natural um, the National Guard and our military installations? I believe that's a huge issue that needs to be addressed, and I think that we're going to have some great legislation come forward from that in the next year or so. Hmm. And this is just our forest and ag land as defined under this this uh, this bill, and we're looking at. You know, you, you can't own a majority interest in it here. And uh, that's how we started this bill, and that's where it's been moving through uh, as a non-resident alien. There is an interest in there for leaseholds. Okay. You know, for you to have a, a, a development of an ag or ag chemical or, or whatever it may be here, 
fertilizer here in Mississippi, it's got to be utilized here. It's yep. got to be tested here. So we do have a, a leasehold provision in there for an exemption of uh, up to 500 acres for, you know, Sagenta. Is one of the biggest that you keep hearing about in, in Arkansas, and, and you hear that China's bought that company. Well, yeah. you know, if we're going to utilize their products here, and, and unfortunately we do have to utilize their products in the ag industry, um, we've got to be sure those are going to work here in Mississippi. Okay. So we've kind of worked through the leasehold interest there. Uh, we've done some fines and assessments out there. Uh, the biggest thing is once we find out that there's a majority interest of some property on here by an adversary, Secretary of State's office is charged with sending out a notice. Saying, okay. you, you, you've got to get rid of it. Or you can become a U.S. citizen. It's your choice. Uh, if you if you make that choice to become a U.S. citizen and, and get away from your form, former country, we're happy with that. Once that happens, if you fail to, or that entity fails, or country fails to terminate its interest in that property, then the Attorney General will be charged with moving forward. Okay. Fines and assessments are in there, and there's an ability for the the judicial taking of that land by the state of Mississippi. So it's it's pretty basic in that we don't want a majority share of anybody that's an adversary owning property in Mississippi. Makes sense, and I believe that's fairly consistent with the Arkansas laws, is it not? It's it's pretty close. Arkansas is a little bit different with some of their stuff, but the majority of the the wording here we worked through uh, with our partners over the last four to five months. And came up with the product we've got now. Okay. Um, so that has not come out of committee yet? So it's come out of my uh, my subcommittee in judiciary, okay. um, and it will be coming to the full committee. I believe it's coming this afternoon. Okay. You you optimistic about that? You feel like uh, the votes are there to pass this, get it out to the floor? I, I believe the people of Mississippi are wanting something. Yeah, I do I too. think this is a good product. I think it balances everything out there. Okay. And I do think it'll move forward. Okay. Well, I honestly do too. Um, it, it, what about the House? We got something coming over there too. Well, the right? House actually has one. They've already That's passed theirs off yeah. the floor and sent it over. Okay. Uh, we were we worked very closely with the House to be sure the language was mirrored. Right. And we've done a good job doing that, and we appreciate the chairman on the other side, Chairman Pigott, yeah. for moving that, moving that through his committee. So. Headed to conference, likely you think, or at this point, or what? I hope we can uh, we can get it ironed out and we send it to the governor. Okay, yeah, uh, and we've got all kinds of good other issues coming down the pipe, but uh, and as you already know, but but I think this was a big one. It was. I, I think that what folks have just witnessed, you know, with their own eyes and ears, uh, causes them to to be concerned, especially wow. when we've got this stream of illegals just flowing across our border on a daily basis. Oh, People goodness. are worried about it. You know, uh, I, I wish there was some way was, we as a state could could further implement more on that, that border control uh, there because the numbers just are, are staggering. They're crazy. I know. They're crazy. And the Biden administration just doesn't seem to have any interest in, in addressing the issue. Oh, we don't want to. We don't work on real problem issues. We want to work on the stuff that doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Is that? I totally. It's kind of how I feel like the the Biden administration's moved right now. That's what um, it looks like at this point. And you know, and we're a we're a state that does use migrant labor. Yeah, we have for you know for the last twenty years. You see the influx with the poultry industry, especially, and then you see in some of like the the sweet potato industry, you see some on the coast. Uh, in in other nursery facilities where yeah. they utilize that, but most of those are coming through the process properly. They are, yeah, I agree. And, and I don't think most people have an objection to that. I mean, what they have an objection to is is just these people who are illegal that don't really seem to be up to any good when they're crossing that border. 
And it's a, it's a problem, and it's inundating the country. It, it is, and they're bringing in products that, you know, you've seen the legislature work on fentanyl. You've seen us work on pill presses. And, and unfortunately, those products that are coming in here with a lot of these illegals are very concerning. Yeah. And they, they are deadly, deadly substances that, you know, could end up at a, a party on a college campus and wipe out the, the whole campus. Yeah. You know? All right, what else are you working on? we got about a minute left, and if you can stay, we can come on the other side. We can continue this on the other side of the break. I'm what here with you here? for whatever there, okay, Gerard, I, I promise. Uh, Appreciate that. I think we've got some other ones coming up. We're, you know, we're trying to do some cleanup things. I am working on a nonprofit bill uh, with some of our partners, trying to do a little accountability in our nonprofit corporations out there. Uh, and really all it is is making them file the same annual report any LLC or anybody else would in the Secretary of State's office. And just note that did you receive state funds, if you did, from what source, and that being it. I think we're seeing some traction happen with that. And and the biggest deal is bring some accountability. With all the bad press we've received over the last five years on on the welfare scandal, it's time to get a little accountability out Yeah, that makes sense. Surely there's an interest in doing something there. I believe it is. Yeah. We got Senator Tyler McConn in the Element Well studio. We're coming right back. the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert, Middays with Gerard, Super Talk Mississippi. Blue lights flashing in my rear view. The sheriff said, boy, I should have known it was you. We're back in the Element Well studio. We're visiting with Senator Tyler McCon from over there in Lauderdale, Newton, Scott, and Rankin counties, yeah, Rankin. right? Four counties. I always like you guys that have these districts that touch all these counties like that. I, I'll say that I probably have one of the prettiest districts because I've got two full counties, and it's just it's a nice district. And, you know, we got some good folks over there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. No doubt about it. East Central uh, Mississippi, for sure. Uh, so we were well, we're talking about um, while we're talking about I guess ag and and uh, forestry big industries in our state the weather wreaked havoc on the pine trees across the state of Mississippi and not just pine trees but magnolias and and lots of other plants honestly oh um, yeah but the pine trees are particularly noticeable because the, we have them all over the state for the most part and they're and they're tall and so you see them and they're all along our, our roadways, certainly in my neighborhood, I had to take two out in my yard. No. You, know, you get you get worried about them falling. That's right. And I, I know the, the my county of Madison, I believe, has applied for federal assistance to take out a lot of the pine trees, uh, fearing that they just may uproot and fall just randomly at any point in time, and it could fall across the road and, and, and harm some... Uh, some property and harm some people, more importantly, driving down the road, roadway. You know, this this is an issue that we haven't seen since, uh, I believe they said the 80s. Yeah. You know, we had a big big run back then. Uh, and unfortunately, we brought a lot of it on ourselves by not managing that timber. 
But you know, Mother Mother Nature has a way of uh, of fixing things that we screw up, and uh, and I think you're going to see that if you see um, you're seeing a lot of deaths of timber that just weren't managed. Now, is that hmm. all you're seeing? You're not seeing just that because it's going across the state. Hmm. You know, with the number of trees that were actually stated to have died, um, we're not done yet. We're not done because. You haven't seen your hardwoods really start coming out. We don't know how many of those we we lost during this drought, and through we, the drought's going to be for them, not the beetle. There, um, my concern is we've got to encourage people to clean up and replant. Just just manage this time. Yeah, we're working real hard to get get sources, get locations for you to take your timber, to take your residuals, and all that across the state. We just need to be sure that supplies there. And where we had a four-to-one ratio of, uh, of trees that were left out there for everyone you cut, we're going to see that diminish substantially just because of this one summer that we had. So I, I do encourage people, and I think everybody else will in the forestry industry, to say, don't give up. Just remember we, we need that supply in the future, and it's going to change some. Um, yeah. I'm very concerned that we're going to see people go and just, just bulldoze. Hmm. Boy, those are staying down and put it back in pasture, which is great for me as a cattle farmer, but it's not good for the industry as a whole in forestry. Uh, it is devastating. I understand that. And it's really bad for the people that had planned on using that as part of their retirement. Um, you talk about what's going to happen with these trees. I'm concerned about MDOT. MDOT's budget is going to take a huge hit based just on the cleanup of this. If you see them on the roads already out there going down the highways trying to go and clean up some of that that timber, um, I know that in District 5 they've already estimated over $6 million is what it will cost in an increased budget this year Yeah, just for that timber. Wow, I didn't think about that. So th- this isn't a problem unique to Mississippi, though. So are, are we seeing some federal disaster relief funding uh, that's being... I've, I've heard that uh, I've heard it's being considered. I do know the commissioner uh, for uh, the forestry commissioner, the state forester, was in D.C. with a group discussing what could be done. I don't know that you're going to see something where they pay for your trees. I mean, I just I don't know mm. that that's going to see what you be what you see. I, I do think you're going to see something with regard to uh, credits for reforestation, uh, credits for helping you with regard to your cleanup, uh, because that's that could cost you thousand, two thousand dollars an acre just to clean that up. Uh, do you? Do I think you're going to see people just let it go? Probably so, and they're going to come down. You'll have a natural forest come back. You'll see a whole lot of sweet gums pop up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. Well, it's, I mean, you can't help but notice it as you travel across the landscape of the state. And I, I have a little stretch that I travel on the Natchez Trace uh, between my home and where I attend church. And you, you can't help but notice it, you know. That's you see, right. and, and they're starting to clean some of that up and remove some of those. And and a lot of times, of course, those generally two lane road, and and a lot of times those those uh, trees are not far off of the shoulder there. Certainly long enough and tall enough. If they fall, they're they're going way across the road onto the other side, and could be a, a danger. I would say, situation. you know, we as a public need to be cognizant of the fact that our counties, our cities. Uh, MDOT, your power companies, 
you know, all the fiber that's being strung on those yeah. power poles. Yep. I get it. They've got their right-of-ways. Uh, but a lot of these trees are a little bit longer than your right-of-way. Yeah. And, uh, and they're all going to be fighting fights for the next couple of years, mm-hmm. trying to be sure that that doesn't that's impact your service. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But that's absolutely a good point. It's always yeah. a concern. All right, so you got lots of other uh, high-profile matters that the, the <laughs> legislature is uh, is debating. We've been talking, of course, as you know, you you kind of uh, received the baton from our prior guest, Representative Missy McGee, uh, who has shepherded this uh, Medicaid expansion uh, issue through the House. There, the Senate, we're told, is going to have its uh, its bill. Uh, as well here pretty soon. And then uh, I think both chambers are going to take something up. The governor has been pretty clear that he, he opposes uh, this move. Where, where do you stand and what do you think about the Senate? What do you hear in, in the Senate at this point? And I know you've been heads down on on uh, forestry and ag and, and Judd, but what are you hearing on that matter? Uh, I'm hearing that it's uh, it's still in debates uh, for sure. Um I'm not uh, I'm not on public health and I'm not on Medicaid, <laughs> so I'm not in the middle of the mix uh, right now. Uh, I, I'm very concerned, uh, and I think we all are very concerned about what happens here. The feds are not necessarily known for continuing to do what they say they're going to do mm-hmm. over a long period of time. Um, so I'm very concerned about anything we do that's dependent upon that federal money there. Now, Mississippi as a whole, you know, we receive a lot of federal funds. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number, and I forget what the number is, but it's, it's substantial for every dollar we send to, to D.C. Three to one. We get back. It's, it's, Three it's to huge. One. Yeah. Uh, and this is just going to continue that that deficit for sure. I've heard uh, a lot about their bill. I've not gone and read their bill. Mm-hmm. I understand it's about 24 pages from Representative McGee mm-hmm. and um, – and I and I understand where they're coming from. The plight is to to do what you can to plug the hole for those who are are not not having insurance or not helping the system and are and are are putting us in a position of uncompensated care. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have all of these hospitals out there that are concerned about that. And I've also heard the hospitals that say that this isn't the magic bullet, right? Um, and I don't know what the magic bullet is, and I don't know if we can get there ever. Uh, I do think that you're going to see a pretty good bill come from. Senator Blackwell, Chairman Blackwell, mm-hmm. uh, can I vote for it? I don't know yet. Uh, I haven't okay. seen it for sure. Okay. Uh, but I do think there's some there's some definitely some improvements that need to be made upon the one that came over. Okay, let's uh, let's turn our focus to education. New funding formulas being proposed mm-hmm. right in both chambers. Uh, that uh, that gets a little wonky too. What do you think? It does get a little wonky, I, and I appreciate. Uh, Senator DeBar, who, you know, he'll tell you in the past, he, he when he was appointed education chair, that he wondered what he did wrong. <laughs> <laughs> He's done a great job of leading us over the last five years. I'm anxious to see what he comes out with. Um, I'm not on education yet, of course. These these type issues usually hit the floor before I get to see them that much. Um, we've yeah. got to do something. You know, we can't continue to be putting the burden on the counties to continue going up on that millage to, to fund these schools. Uh, because if we don't do it on the state level, it has to go back to you at home. That's right. The landowner and the advalorum taxes there. So. Well, I think it just seems like that the MAEP formula, the existing formula, needs modernizing, shall we say, the approach there. It's amazing. We've had a lot happen since then, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you're seeing school districts, and I know that it's a hot-button issue for Jackson, but Jackson uh, Jackson School District is trying to work through the process yeah. of, of consolidating back back down their attendance in, in, uh, in buildings that they've got instead of yeah. 
having it spread out. So we'll close some schools. Yeah, I already have, but I think more are planned to try to uh, achieve some efficiencies there and, and reduce the cost and make that make sense. We are definitely in a different world now. You I mean you, the tech guy, Gerard? You know about this. You've watched it evolve over the years, and and the face of education is different. Totally. Uh, and I think we can do more with with what we've got for less money than we've got to. You know, uh, we just got to be cognizant of that public dollar out there. Everybody's very protective of their fiefdoms, as you know, and that <laughs> makes it a little more difficult. The little kingdoms, for sure. <laughs> uh, Senator Tyler McCon, really appreciate you coming on. Always good to see you. Thank you, Gerard. I appreciate you. We're coming right back, folks. We got half an hour left here on middays. We're in the Element Well Studio. With Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk, Mississippi. Back in the Element Well studio, and we thank you for joining us today. Let's see what else we got here, Ryan. Now I talked about the boys being at M Trade. Oh, we got in a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar today on In a Mississippi Minute. You'll hear an interview with former star Mississippi State quarterback John Bond. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by Superior Catfish. Remember, there's catfish, then there is Superior Catfish. It's U.S. farm-raised catfish with homegrown flavor. Ask for it by name at your favorite store or restaurant. Go to superiorcatfish.com for more info. So the state of Illinois, we did pass that on, didn't you? They're dropping the former president off their ballot. What a joke all that stuff is, um, as they just plow through state by state that just doesn't want him out there, doesn't want him to even have an opportunity to run for president. What are they afraid of? That he might win? I mean, what's he, what are they afraid of? It's, hmm, I don't get it. Um. Let's see, what uh, what else is going on on the federal front? We've been talking state business all day. Oh, we got Mitch McConnell that, of course, told us yesterday he's stepping down. It's a pretty decent speech that he made. Now the question is, of course, who? And we're seeing some of the senators emerging as possible successors uh, to uh, Senator Mitch McConnell who've been there a long time, 
I don't know how many years, 40-something years, I think. But who might we be looking at as a successor? It's kind of a crowded field. Of course, that's a very powerful position. Whether your party is in the majority or not, either serving as uh, certainly the, the head person of your party in the U.S. Senate is big time. I'm seeing Senator John Toon, uh, Senator Barrasso from Wyoming, Senator John Cornyn of Texas. John Toon, is he North Dakota, I believe? And then Senator Rick Scott, he's also being mentioned from Florida. Toon is South Dakota. South Dakota, thank you. And uh, is, is there anybody else? Tom Cotton, is he also being mentioned among the possibilities for some reason i think i heard that he. Well, I mean, at this point i wouldn't be surprised if you heard just about any name that is true that's absolutely true but i mean in general they're replacing somebody that's been in the senate longer than i've been alive right did you happen to check that out how long has he been there uh he assumed office as the united states senator from the state of kentucky january 3rd 1985 jeez wow 50 years almost, right? Almost 40. Oh, that's I'm right. Not quite 24. Yeah, 1885. Pardon me. Um, wow. That's amazing. 40, a long time. No doubt. So, Senator Toon, Senator Cornyn from Texas, John Barrasso, Wyoming, Rick Scott, Florida. Yep. Tom Cotton is listed in the lists uh, prepared by those pundits who track this sort of stuff. Steve Daines, Republican from Montana, also on the list. That Montana's a weird state because there are other senators of Democrat, John Tester, whom I thought was vulnerable in the upcoming election, but all the polls show that he's got a, a fairly comfortable lead against a Republican challengers in a potential head-to-head general election match. So the question is, who's going to control the Senate after November? Because that'll make a big difference in terms of who would be the leader of the Republicans in the senior chamber there. That's what's going on up there in Washington. The, um, The IVF issue, this was an interesting one. This was um, a ruling recently in Alabama, in vitro fertilization, IVF is what it stands for. So did you see this? There was a bill offered by Senator Tammy Duckworth to essentially make IVF, the procedure, the IVF procedures, legal in all 50 states, by codifying such in federal law. And it it failed. It didn't go through. I think Republicans supported it, causing the measure to fail. I was a little surprised about that. So I think the Republicans are busy trying to explain their vote. It was the Alabama Supreme Court, which essentially halted these fertility treatments in a number of clinics in the state of Alabama. 
Now, Tommy Tuberville, an Alabama senator, declared he was all for the ruling because we need to have more kids, is what he said. Think about that. That's a little weird. He said in vitro fertilization, in fact, helps make more kids. Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, wondered whether IVF created 110, 100, 1,000 embryos between zero and a dozen per cycle in common. What? What uh, that the, saying? the common practice for IVF is to get as many viable eggs, to fertilize as many viable eggs as possible, and to select the healthiest, usually, a, a, usually it's more than one, for implantation in the mother. Okay. And once it's implanted, then it's like any other pregnancy, the... Uteral lining grows and it, pregnancy begins. Okay. The issue is if you have, say, a dozen viable eggs that you have now, by definition, given life okay. because it's fertilized, then if you do not utilize all of the fertilized eggs... That is, in and of itself, an abortion. Okay. If you believe that life begins at the moment of conception. Makes sense. Which would be the fertilization. So there was a measure brought to the floor by Senator Tammy Duckworth, a Democrat from Illinois, brought to the floor for consideration under unanimous consent, that, that procedure, and which, of course, means that just one senator, one member of the body, could block it. Otherwise, you go through the whole process if you can't get it done that way to, and then produce an outcome. And this would essentially protect the IVF procedure at the federal level, meaning it would have to be legal in all 50 states, which is what many on the, the pro-choice, shall we say, proponents seek to do. Now that the Dobbs case has been overturned, they seek to codify the right to an abortion at the federal level, meaning that the states would have to allow them. They would not have the option if it became federal law. Same with IVF. Well, there was um, there was a problem with getting that through. I believe it was Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, Mississippi senator, who objected, said the uh, in her view, the Alabama decision does not ban IVF, nor has any state banned IVF. I think that's largely true. Yeah, it just it the Alabama decision basically makes it more difficult to perform IVF and potentially more costly because instead of finding 12 viable eggs at one time making them whole and fertilizing them then implanting them you're you're going to have some left over instead of doing that then you wind up with one or two viable eggs per procedure per time that you would implant so that you're not disposing of fertilized eggs which or you're not requiring the clinic to have those eggs in storage in perpetuity. Forever, right. So so as a result, those who 
who uh, offer IVF services are basically saying we're worried about doing this, continuing this in the state of Alabama for, for possible liability purposes, right? Correct. So uh, so Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith objected that, to this, and thus the measure failed at the federal level. We'll see what happens after that. But it, it would have essentially protected the right to uh, IVF procedures across the country. It's essentially nullifying Alabama's court decision next door. Interesting issue. Wouldn't have thought that had come up, really. I, that kind of came out of nowhere with the Alabama court ruling. And so now a bill that was designed to essentially overturn that Alabama decision fails in the United States Senate. We're coming right back with the final segment of Middays in the Element Well Studio. Fillmore Buick Middays with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. On the ceasefire text line, Ben from Madison says, IBF issue could be a really big one going into the 24 election. Republicans should get on the same page if they don't want the issue hurting them. I agree with you. I think it's going to hurt them, and uh, the Democrats are absolutely ecstatic at this Alabama ruling and chomping at the bit to jump all over that. That does seem to be a very high-priority issue to many voters. And in particular, voters in those swing counties in those handful of swing states, which are essential to winning the White House. K-Dog and Wiggins, I'm sure the Republicans won't be able to agree on someone, talking about who should succeed Mitch McConnell there. Let's see here. Hopefully it's not that loser. John... Cornyn, says Thomas and Greenwood. The senators are listening. Will she agree to see? Oh, yeah, we're talking about the CMS back on the Medicaid thing, CMS approval being a requirement when it's amended. So I guess the question I have for you, Thomas, does that mean you would support Medicaid expansion with a work requirement? Just curious. Um, it, It is not contingent on that, as you know. And I honestly believe that's because of the $700 million of federal money that's available should the state expand. I don't know this. I haven't. Nobody's told me this. I haven't asked the question. But I think the reason that the bill is not written such that if CMS does not grant the waiver that the program would not be implemented. I think that because it has a four-year repealer on it, that the additional funds that would come from 
the federal government alone cover the state's cost of the program, and then when you add to it the roughly $150 million that the state would receive in the form of the additional premium tax, that's $1.2 billion over four years, and the state's cost roughly $600 million, so the state would net $600 million. My guess is if it it's going to get repealed again uh, based on the current language in the bill with the automatic repealer in four years, that if the work requirement is not granted that by CMS, it'd be difficult to enact the legislation and renew the program, if you will, in four years. That many in the Mississippi legislature would would take the position without the work requirement, I'm not on board. The lieutenant governor actually said that. So I'm kind of wondering, Rhino, if the Senate version of the bill will have a provision that relies on CMS approving the work requirement in order for the Division of Medicaid to act and implement the program, that that is an absolute essential criteria. I don't know. But that's what the lieutenant governor said, said that on uh, the show with Mr. Gallo, I believe, earlier in the week, that, yep, in fact, I think what he said is if the work requirement's not approved, then the thing doesn't get implemented or something to that effect. That's not the way the House bill works, but I think he was just stating his his personal position. So it wouldn't surprise me if we don't see such a provision in the Senate bill where the program just does not get implemented without the work requirement. I still believe that managing that and confirming and determining that one is satisfying that work requirement is really difficult. I think it's more difficult than people are are, um, aware, and that would be incumbent upon, based on the law, the Division of Medicaid, and I think that requires resources and assets that they probably don't have right now or stretched somewhat thin just to manage eligibility and administer that in the existing program. A little context on the, the IVF discussion we yep. were having in the last segment. Yep. This whole thing got started just before Christmas in 2020 when a fertility clinic in Mobile, Alabama, allowed a patient to get into the the area where they were cryogenically storing fertilized embryos, and the patient destroyed three couples' embryos. And oh. Alabama has a law that states that life is from conception, Okay, but it's been in the courts ever since then over who's responsible, who has to pay, what's got to get done to protect the parents Makes sense. lurking for IVF. Interesting. This ain't over. I believe this is going to continue. We thank you so much for joining us today. We're back again with you tomorrow in the Element Wealth Studio. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.